Well, I really feel like I've already done my worshiping. And John and Denise are just old, old, old friends. When I was just a little girl, he would come to Orcas Island and sing around the campfire before we even went to Shaw. And if you ever are alone with him and it's not Sabbath, ask for Betsy the heifer or run Samson run. I still remember. And Denise was my counselor at Sunset Lake when I was maybe eight or nine years old, so long time ago. And when I heard they were coming, I just said, oh, I want them to share their music with the rest of us, and what a blessing that has been. Okay, so Will Bowen, the author of the book, A Complaint-Free World, had a valid reason to complain. He was sitting in his home office writing a sermon, he was a pastor, when he heard a loud thud followed by an animal scream. Every animal has a unique voice, and he knew that voice well. It was his long-haired golden retriever, Ginger. Ginger had been crossing the road in front of their house when a vehicle hit her. She lay in the road shrieking in pain. Will ran to the road, followed by his six-year-old daughter, Leah. They immediately knew that Ginger was badly injured. She was trying to use her front legs to stand, but her hind legs had no strength. They'd been broken. Over and over, she yowled in pain. Leah, the little girl, stood frozen and just kept saying her name. Leah, Ginger. As the tears ran down her cheeks, Will looked around for the driver who had hit Ginger, but he saw that no one had stopped. Then he looked into the distance and saw a truck towing a trailer heading out of town, cresting the hill, and traveling well past 55 miles an hour. Will momentarily forgot the dog forgot about his crying daughter, and jumped into his own car, squeezed out of the driveway, and started a car chase. 60, 75, finally topped out at 83 miles an hour. The car was difficult to handle on the uneven road, and Will finally had a little glimpse of sanity when he realized that if he died it would be even more upsetting to his family than losing Ginger. Finally, the truck driver turned into his driveway, unaware that he was being followed. He stepped out of his truck in a torn shirt and dirty jeans. A greasy baseball cap sported a profane witticism, and it was pushed back on his sunburned forehead. Will jumped out of his car yelling, You hit my dog! The man looked at him quizzically as if Will had spoken a foreign language. I know I hit your dog. What are you going to do about it? Whoa, what? What did you just say? He smiled as if correcting an errant child and said it again slowly and more deliberately. I know I hit your dog. What 
are you going to do about it? And Will went blind with rage. In his mind, he remembered Leah sobbing as she clung to Ginger's body. Will yelled, put up your hands. What? The man asked, grinning sarcastically. Will had never been in a fight in all of his adult life. He doesn't believe in fighting. He didn't know how to fight, but he wanted to beat this man to death. He was insane with anger, and he didn't mind if he ended up in prison. I ain't going to fight you, mister, and if you hit me, it's assault. Fight me, Will demanded. No, sir, he drawled through his remaining teeth. He turned his back and lumbered slowly away. And Will stood there shaking, anger poisoning his blood. Will doesn't remember driving home, but he doesn't remember lifting Ginger into the car and taking her to the vet. But he does remember her pleading eyes and the way she smelled and how she whimpered softly as the vet's needle ended her suffering. How could a person do such a thing, Will repeated, the tears streaming down his face, too. So Will told the story. He perfected the story with dramatic gestures and dramatic intonation. It was such a compelling story. He told it again and again to anyone who would listen. He even added an embellishment or two. What a horrible human. And Will told himself, well, I need to get this off my chest. I'm, I'm grieving. But the more he complained, the madder he became. Days later, the man's sarcastic smile and arrogant words were still just glued to Will's mind. Will imagined various forms of premeditated murder, but he didn't own a gun. A baseball bat, maybe, or a piece of rope to choke him from behind? Sleep eluded Will. On the third night without sleep, Will got up and began to write in his journal. And he had me as soon as I read this, because that's what I do when I can't sleep, is write in my journal. And Will complained to the Lord bitterly, spilling out his grief, his pain, and his discontent. After an hour, he had filled several pages, and then he wrote something surprising. Those who hurt others are hurting themselves. He stopped and wondered where this had come from. Who else? Where had this come? And he said, well, what? And then he wrote it again. Those who hurt others are hurting themselves. What does that have to do with this guy? Slowly, as he sat there in the dark room, a new awareness dawned. Anyone who could so easily hurt an animal and not stop, Anyone who could create that kind of grief in a family and not come to make an apology must have never loved a pet. 
and anyone who could see a little girl sobbing and not come back to say, I'm sorry, had never loved a child. Anyone who would refuse to apologize must have had a pretty calloused heart that had been created from trauma after trauma after trauma. Will decided that the driver was the real victim in this story. He had acted as a villain, but he had shown the results of his broken heart in the process. No one acts that way without a painful history. Finally, Will prayed, not just for himself and not just for his family. He prayed for the driver of that truck. And as he prayed, he noticed that his breathing slowed down and his tension relaxed. Finally, he could switch off the light and go back to bed and sleep. Every time he remembered and felt angry, he again prayed for the driver of that truck. In Dick Tibbet's book, Forgive to Live, this storytelling phase of resentment is called a rehearsal. And what a rehearsal is, is when you just keep telling your story to anyone who will listen. The problem with a rehearsal is every time you talk about it, the feeling comes back. And every time you tell of your complaint again, you have to relive that event and you have the same pain. The word resentment literally means to feel again. Every time we rehearse a difficult experience, we feel it all over. In the process, you and I experience so much more pain than we need to. And we say, why is life so horrible? Well, it's because we've been rehearsing the bad stuff instead of fixing our mind on the good stuff. Jesus told us to pray for our enemies. Perhaps he did this because when we stop to pray, our hearts are in this vulnerable place where maybe he can speak truth to us. And as we begin to pray for those that hurt us, Jesus can give us insight that we could not have any other way. And as we pray for those who have hurt us, he can give us a glimpse into what that person, why they did what they did, who they are and how they struggle. Suddenly we can depersonalize the story and choose to forgive and choose to stop telling that story and bring it up again and again. In Matthew chapter 12, verses 3 and 34, Jesus gives a serious warning. He says, make a tree good and its fruit will be good. Make a tree bad and its fruit will be bad. You'll recognize the tree by its fruit. You brood of vipers, how can you who are evil say anything good? For out of the overflow of the heart the mouth speaks. Well, the good or bad fruit in this passage obviously refers to words, right? 
Well, it's peach season, and I have a summer tradition. Once each year, I go to Sunny Farms and buy a whole case of peaches. I did this yesterday, and they are beautiful. I actually go around and smell each type until I figure out which one smells best. So I bring this case of peaches home. I counted them, there were 44. It cost $40, so it's like a dollar a peach. And we eat them three meals a day. And I make cobbler, and I wanted to make a cobbler to take to Niemeyer's tomorrow. So I had to buy them in time that they could ripen well. And when I come home from Sunny Farms, I don't leave those peaches in the box. Why? Why do you take the peaches out of the box, Sandy? You want to spread them out so if there is anything that is rotten, it won't infect the peaches next to it, right? You spread them out where they're not touching. I learned that from my mother. Um, likewise, our mouths often have some rot there, and it's not tooth decay, it's word decay. And as we speak rotten words, we influence anyone who hears them. We pull them down, and often if we complain, they'll complain right along with us. We influence each other, and we contaminate our families, our workplace, our neighborhoods, and our church. Complaining is more contagious than the coronavirus. And according to the rest of this verse, it's actually more deadly. If you live and work in an environment where there is chronic complaining, your chances of quitting increase exponentially. Most people who quit, whatever the job, say they quit because they can't stand the negativity of their workplace. And often, one negative person in a family, an office, or a church does a tremendous amount of damage. And so I beg the Lord to set a guard over the door of my lips because I don't want to be the place where rot is spread. I don't want to be the place where negativity dwells and then goes to other people. Um, Proverbs 18.21 warns us, the tongue has the power of life and death, and those who love it will eat its fruit. In other words, if you love to complain, if you love to criticize, if you love to gossip, it's going to bite you, and your life is not going to be as pleasant and won't have the kind of quality relationships that you would have otherwise. Often, our words are repeated, sometimes by the people who are the very closest to us. Our friends in Maine had an African gray parrot, and their kids were growing up. They had two sons. The older one was quiet and studious, and Neville, the younger son, was inquisitive and mischievous. This was the kid who always ended up 
on the roof of the church after potluck. Every single Sabbath. Until finally the deacons cut the tree down. Okay, this is the kid who every time we had a baptism would go swimming. He wasn't a bad kid. He was just busy. And you know, he turned out wonderfully. He spent this last summer taking care of his grandfather as he died and then helping to pack up his grandparents' estate as grandma moved into assisted living. He's headed to Loma Linda in the fall, and he still loves Jesus. Okay, he was a good kid. Okay, but when the family decided they didn't want to keep the parrot, they gave this parrot to another family in our church. And the other family was amused at all the things that Chica could already say. Uh-oh. <laughs> she could imitate the ringtones of her former owner's cell phone and then imitate exactly how they would answer in hello. She could also imitate the mother's voice, complete with British accent. Damn it, Neville. It's been 10 years since Chica moved in with the second family. But just to break the monotony, Chica still randomly curses this poor kid who has long since grown up. What words and phrases are the people around you learning from you? Where are the little parrots in a well, be careful, little lips, what you say. Because it's not just the Savior up above, but it's everyone around you that also absorbs either your positive words or your negative words. Well, the passage in Matthew 12 continues in verse 35. It says, The good man brings good things out of the good stored up in him, and the evil man brings evil things out of the evil stored up in him. Well, my daughter Katie is amazing in so many ways. She's smart, she's hardworking, she's focused, she's determined. She is spunky to the max, all traits that she inherited from her father. She also inherited a trait, and I think it might be from both of us, that makes my heart ache. She learned how to judge people whose lives fell short of her expected standard. There is a phrase she often uses as an adult, she's now 28, that stops me in my tracks. When someone has failed to be nice to her and treat her as she, was, she would like, she labels them a horrible human. Wow, a label, horrible human. The man in Will Bowen's story is a good example of someone I would call a horrible human. But here's the kicker. If you have that label in your pocket, just ready to slap on people who disgruntle you, you will find horrible humans everywhere. Just your attitude will provoke them to be horrible. I suspect it takes a horrible human to use that label freely. Instead of seeing a tired human, an insecure human, a hurting human, 
we want to put on that horrible label. Maybe we should fill our pockets instead with labels that read, Beloved Human. This is a person that God loves. It takes one to know one. And what you're labeling other people often is a reflection of what's in your own heart. And then comes verses 36 and 37. This is pretty sobering. It says, I tell you that men will have to give account on the day of judgment for every careless word they have spoken. How does that verse resonate in your heart? It's like, Lord, have mercy on me, a sinner. Lord, have mercy on me, because I am a woman of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips. And here it says that we're not judged by perfectly understanding 28 fundamental beliefs. It says we're not going to be judged by how well we tithed. We're not going to be judged on all kinds of things. We're judged on what comes out of our mouth because it's a reflection of what's in our heart. Ouch. Ouch. It's pretty hard. Every careless word. James 3, verse 2, tells us that we all stumble in many ways. Okay, that's true. And then it says anyone who is never at fault in what he says, that's the perfect man. The one whose mouth only sings praises and only has positive, good, true, lovely things to say, that is the perfect man. Because if he's able to control his mouth, everything else is easy. Okay. So, learning to speak thoughtful, life-giving words is a mark of spiritual maturity. What comes out of your mouth is indicative in how much you have grown up to be like Jesus. How you doing? Remember Philippians 2.14. It tells us in everything you do, stay away from complaining and arguing. Okay, does it say don't argue with someone who's right? Does it say don't argue with someone who's powerful and can bite you back? Don't argue with someone that you might push away? Or does it say, in everything you do, stay away from complaining and arguing? Now, I preached this sermon in Port Townsend a week ago. And what I found interesting is the immediate feedback was really positive. And then about three or four days into it, I started getting these little emails that said, you know, I've been thinking, maybe it's not all bad to complain. You know, maybe complaining helps people to know where they need to change. And I don't think God's asking us not to complain. Okay, speak, O Lord, in your holy word, what did you tell us to do? He said, stay away from complaining. 
Okay, this is not some way up there in the sky sermon. This is, can you do this thing or not? Do you even want to try to do this or not? Several of the people that I offered these little purple bands to, as a reminder not to complain, would not take them. They did not want it to be reinforced that they truly are a complainer. Oh my. And you have to remember also that when we don't complain, what does it do for the people around us, the people in the world? Look at verse 15 there. It says, you are to live clean, innocent lives as the children of God in a dark world. Well, that's very true, right? Full of crooked and perverse people. This crooked and perverse people actually is a quotation from back in Exodus when the people, the children of Israel, were complaining as a crooked and perverse people. And then it says, let your light shine brightly before them. How do we let our light shine according to this passage? Is it really difficult to figure out? We let our light shine when we choose to be positive. We let our light shine when we zip what isn't positive. Wow. Well, researchers believe that there are four stages of becoming competent in anything. Um, well, we've got to go to Philippians 4.13. And that's where um, Paul is saying, I had to work at this. I had to work at being positive and I had to work at being content. It didn't happen without effort. I had to learn. And then he says in Philippians 4.13, I can do this because Jesus gives me strength. So I want to say any of us, if we take this as a challenge and say, okay, I'm going to stop complaining, the only way we're going to be able to do that is by the help of the Spirit in our hearts. You know, and it's like, okay, Jesus, put your hand over my mouth. Please do this. Researchers believe that there are four stage, stages to become competent in anything from developing computer skills or learning to cook or becoming complaint-free. So in becoming a complaint-free person, you're going to go through these four stages. So let's have you put up what those stages are. Unconscious incompetence. That means you are a complainer and you have no clue that you're negative. You just are and you think that's the way you're supposed to be. Then there's conscious incompetence which is now you're complaining and you're aware that you shouldn't be. Now you're complaining and it's bothering you. If you're unconscious of it, you don't even, it doesn't bother you at all. And then you get to the place where you're complaining a whole lot less, but you're still working on it. You have to be consciously competent. You're thinking hard to say, I don't want to complain. And finally, it just becomes a part of your patterns and your personality, and now you never complain, and you're unconsciously competent. Now, where do we all want to be? We all want to be unconsciously competent. But where are we? Most of us are unconsciously incompetent. 
And so the first thing that you need to do to overcome a habit is just start becoming aware that you even do it. Okay? And sorry, you can't skip steps. You can't go directly from the first one to the last one. Depending on your experience, these stages may take you a long time. The goal is to go 21 days because that's how long it takes to make a habit. All right, I've had this little band on for one week, and I've never made it one day. I'm still on day one, okay? And as I look at the research, that's pretty normal, that most of us can't go even one day. Um, so the goal is 21 consecutive days, three solid weeks in a row, which is 504 complaint-free hours. No complaints, zip or zero. But the final stage offers us hope. Look at the pattern. This is what he says most people report. So it takes about two weeks to even get to day two, and then you complain, and you have to go back to day one. Every time you complain, you're back at the beginning again. But what he says happens is when you get to about day 15 or 16, you do not want to go back to day one. So you become really careful to just say, okay, uh, this could go negative, so I think I better walk away. You know, you're starting to complain. And, um, and there was a woman who went out to lunch with a friend, and the friend started to complain. And so the lady showed her her bracelet and, and said, you know, I'm really working on this. And her friend said, but what are we going to talk about? And really, the meat of most conversations, what will we talk about? How about talking about Jesus? How about talking about the things that are good and true and pure and lovely? It doesn't take a, a rocket science. Someday, and don't you want it, you will become unconsciously competent but not if you don't work the program. you got to work it. A man from Bosnia wrote to Will Bowen and asked him a question. He says, I've not yet made it 21 consecutive days. I always hit a wall around day four. Well, I'll be happy if I could get to day four. But I'm already a happier person. Is it supposed to do that? Yes. Happiness is a byproduct of a complaint-free life. The less you complain, the more positive you think, the more positively you speak, the happier you're going to feel. So I'm not telling you this because I want to, to raise some impossible standard for you all to beat each other up or, or yourselves up. I'm offering this because I think it might make you happier. It might make you full of a little more of the joy of the Lord. And it certainly would make you a better witness. Okay? So, attempting to become complaint-free may spontaneously induce happiness. Oh, let's go. The less we complain, the happier we become. And guess what? The happier the people who live with us and work with us become as well. It's going to take time, it's going to take effort, 
And the first step really is to become aware of how much you even do it. Oh my goodness. So the first thing the purple bracelet is going to show you is how much you complain. Now, most of us are pretty self-aware. You know, I, I know the things I know, and I also know the things I don't know. I can cook. I can't do mechanical things. I can garden, but I can't do trigonometry. You know, back and forth. We, we're pretty self-aware. But complaining, we're not aware. We are really, truly not aware of how much we do it. That's the unconscious incompetence. So following this plan is a reality check. You, what you have to do is switch your arm every time you complain. All right? Well, so now I'm back to day one. Tomorrow maybe I'll get there. When Will Bowen first took this challenge, he switched his bracelet so much that it wore out three times. He needed three bracelets before he made it 21 days. He was on um, an interview with Oprah, a TV interview, and the producer asked him to demonstrate the, the act of moving it from one wrist to another, and it broke and sprung and hit the cameraman in the face. That is a weakened band from being switched around so often. You know, you'll be in really good company if you struggle with this. But moving the bracelet every time makes these deep furrows into your consciousness that will make you aware. And when you recognize it, then you will no longer be unconsciously incompetent. Now you're going to be consciously incompetent. And that's the first goal, just to be aware of it. The second part of the program is to know which day you were on. If I ask you, if you tell me I want to be held accountable, and I say, what day are you on? And you say, I don't know, it might be three, but it might also be four. You're not paying close enough attention. You need to know what day you're on. And this is the hard one. You can't be bracelet cops for each other. Because if you tell someone they need to move their bracelet, you have just complained at them and you need to move your own. Okay, so if you're doing this together with a friend or someone in your family, um, you don't want to be catching them. You just are working on yourself, just like the 12 steps. You do your own work and not the others. Well, I have a friend who answers the greeting, how are you, with a complaint-busting response. He says, better than I deserve to be. Isn't that pretty cool? How are you all? Better than you deserve to be, you know? You might have some aches and pains, and of course we're all aging, and our brains age, and our bodies age, and you know, we could do organ recitals. Or we can just say, I've got Jesus helping me, and I've had a good life to this point. And that's what my mom would say. She'd say, I'm in pain now, but you know, I had 87 years that I didn't have so much pain. I had a good life. So I can have a few years of pain at the end. And you want to say, how'd you get there? Instead of saying, I feel horrible today. Eventually, you can be complaint-free. But probably only for short periods and perfect conditions. 
and a lot of work. So, the best day to begin is the day that all of your problems have been solved and you finally think you won't complain anymore? Or is the best day to begin today? All right. Will was at, invited to speak at a city in Canada that was very seriously economically depressed. He was invited to lunch with the mayor and the publisher of the newspaper and a lot of other important people. After lots of discussion about the importance of thinking and speaking positively, the publisher leaned over and admitted to Will, I hate to admit it, but if we run a headline that declares crisis, it will outsell the good news 10 to 1. Our appetite, as Americans especially, is to always be in the know about what is wrong and bad. And we want to be reminded of these things for some good reason, so we'll be ready when the disaster comes to us. We somehow feel that knowing the news will help us emotionally prepare. How's it working for you? Does knowing the news make you happy? You know, and I never really have done the news until the coronavirus where I wanted to know how many cases in our county. And then I started getting involved in the election. You know, reading the stuff about the election last year. Horrible. It did a number on my brain. I know a man who watches CNN 24-7. He even sleeps with it on. He is one of the most fearful and negative people I know. By the way, I think Fox News might also have the same effect. I think it doesn't matter where the news is coming from. It's still bad news. So if you do this challenge and you end up on day four and you realize what you complain the most about is the state of our country or where all of the money is going and how the inflation is rising and how worried you are about it, um, I have a suggestion for you. Stop watching, listening to, reading about, and talking about the bad news and pick up the only source of truth and good news that we have. Right? Do you think that would help you? Do you think that would get you through this season when we don't know what end is up? Stop giving energy to what is wrong by talking about it. Biden bashing will not improve your witness, nor will it improve your mood. Start taking God's promises as the real news, the good news that gives life. Speak life. So I, I want to urge you to do this. Do this for your wife. Do this for your husband. Do it for your kids and your grandkids. Negativity does not need to be a family value. Wow. Do it for your friends and neighbors. Do it for our church. Do it for your witness so you can shine as a bright light in the dark world. And the best part? Your chances of success improve exponentially. And I think I have a slide that has... No? Okay. Um, 
it was a picture of a bunch of hands reaching out together with a purple bracelet on. Okay, like we're here, we're going to do this together. Now, I don't have a bag of bracelets back there because I want there to be a, a step, a conscious step on your part that you want to do this, not me just handing you one and that you have to do this. So you have to sign up, and I will order as many as you have signed up for, and I will give them away two weeks from now, okay? If you feel like you need this, you can do that. You can sign up, and I'll bring you a bracelet. And you can take one to a friend. So put two if you want one for a friend. But remember, you cannot force them to put it on. It's a choice you have to make for yourself. So are you in? Are you, are you willing to do this so that you can shine as a bright light in a dark world? And that when you have to face the judgment where God will bring out this record of what you've been saying, it will all be covered with mercy. Because you've repented, you're aware of it, you've repented. And God has changed your focus and changed what comes out of your mouth.